Welcome to Set on Sunday, a podcast by Kelleville Anglican where we talk about what was said on Sunday or even what we didn't have time to say on Sunday. We are passionate about being deep in the Word of God and doing life together in community. So thanks for letting us into your week as we learn more about Jesus together. Here's today's episode. Hello everyone and welcome back to our Set on Sunday podcast and this week we'll be talking about Matthew 5. Um, We have heaps of questions so we're going to do a snappy introduction and get straight into it. So with me today is Dave. Hi Dave. Hello Beck. And Dan. Hey Beck. And James. I'm here. All right, let's go. (laughs) Dave, what did you talk about on Sunday? Yeah, so Sunday we uh, continued on in Matthew chapter 5 and um, we see, uh, like any good talk, uh, Jesus just finished his introduction uh, and he dives right into the meat uh, of his talk and that really takes us from 5.17 just to uh, before the end of chapter 7. And verse 17 to 20 I think is some of the most crucial ones for us to understand uh, when it comes to unpacking, you know, and what's what's going on here in the Sermon on the Mount, because uh, Jesus, you know, makes this extraordinary claim that he's come to fulfill the law and the prophets, the, the whole Old Testament, they all point towards him uh, and the, the value of God's word uh, in that. And uh, he sort of leaves us uh, in verse 20 with, you know, the statement, our righteousness, you know, should surpass that of the Pharisees if you want to get into heaven. And then he goes on to show a contrast between what was happening with the Pharisees and the law and the prophets and, and what Jesus says fulfills those. Uh, and there's obviously quite a large discrepancy. Uh, and we stopped at two um, because that's all we had time for. Uh, so we looked at... Um, uh, uh, Murder through to anger, so Jesus sort of changes the game. Fulfillment looks like not just not murdering someone but not being angry with them uh, and what reconciliation looks like. Uh, and then we looked at the topic of uh, the action of adultery through to the attitude of lust. Um, and so we sort of unpacked those uh, two things uh, as best as we could in the time we had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a big one. It um, was. Which is reflected in how many questions that we got. Um, So like you said, um, when Jesus opens up in verses 17 to 20, it really sets the scene for everything we're going to be talking about. So let's get into those bits first. Right. Um, So someone has a question about verse 18. Um, In verse 18, it speaks of until heaven and earth disappear. Is this a reference to when there will be a new heaven and earth in Revelation 21? Yes. Okay, good. It is. (laughs) So I guess the broader is what? how does the law um, finish then or um, or is fulfilled by then? Yes, yeah, so, I mean, just taking Jesus' words where he says, you know, uh, for truly I turn until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of pen will be any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. So I think what Jesus is saying is the law and the prophets still have a function for us today. Yeah. Uh, they continue through and Jesus shows us what that looks like when he says, you know, he's going to, Um, fulfill them. Mm. Uh, And so I think for us, one of the implications is read your Old Testament. Mm. Uh, And we do that here. We, you know, work through different books of the Bible and the Old Testament is uh, part of our diet of what we go through. Uh, And that's, it's an important part. And I think we're just trying to uphold Jesus' words. It says, until he returns again, uh, the law and the prophets have a function for us uh, today. Have a question about that soon. Indeed. Um, so what does Jesus mean by verse 20? For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, 
you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, so I think the demand for righteousness uh, is very strong through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, and you see it, we're going to see it uh, this coming week in uh, verse 48 of chapter 5 where he says, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. So there's this sense in which to get to heaven, there's perfection required. Um, and you need that righteousness. And the righteousness needs to surpass that of the Pharisees, which was such a shock for the hearers. They would have been absolutely, um, you know, right up there in terms of people who were steamed uh, across uh, that particular culture. And Jesus says, you go to those guys who you look up to, who you think are amazing, who do all these amazing things, not even what they do will fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And so I think, you know, uh, as I said on Sunday, Jesus is pushing us back to that spiritual bankruptcy uh, of what it means to be blessed to be poor in spirit um, mm. because it's theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's how getting the kingdom of heaven, declaring I bring nothing. Mm. I need a righteousness, but mm. I can't get my own. Therefore, I need someone else's. Jesus is the answer, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. <righteousness>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like you said, I think it's in, it's intentionally drawing us back to God. It's intentionally an impossible task, just like you said, for so we can come more and more back to God, more and more back for the righteousness that we can find in Jesus that he gives us. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it really highlights how impossible it is to keep the law. I guess, without Jesus yeah. and without the Holy Spirit. Yeah. Which brings us to our next question um, about how, how do we relate to the Old Testament law today? Um, so we have two questions that are roughly the same, so we'll take them together. If Jesus hasn't abolished the law but has fulfilled it, do we need to still keep the law? And if Jesus is the fulfilment of the Old Testament, how should Christians relate to the Old Testament law? Yeah, uh, when you look at what Jesus says around uh, the law and what it means, uh, so if you go to chapter 7 of Matthew, uh, it says, So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you, for this sums up the law and the prophets. Uh, So Jesus is not saying don't do anything with the law and the prophets. He's saying here's a summary of what it actually looks like to keep the law. Do mm. to others as you would have them do to you. Mm. Uh, and another part he talks about, you know, uh, the two greatest commandments, you know, love God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Mm. So I think, um, you know, the question of do we need to keep the law, well, we need to do what Jesus told us to do. Love God with everything we've got and love our neighbours as ourselves. Mm. Um, and... I think what the law does for us is help flesh some of those things out, what they look like. Mm. Uh, Now there's questions of completion and what's already been fulfilled. We don't need to keep the sacrificial system anymore. Jesus is the one true perfect sacrifice for Mm. all sin, all time. Uh, So there's certain things, but even understanding the sacrificial system helps us understand the amazing sacrifice that Jesus actually made. So Mm. they're related to one another, which is why I think the fulfillment word is so key and crucial uh, in verse 17 of chapter 5 of what that looks like. So um, because if we try and keep the law, you know, the 613 commands like the Pharisees Mm. did, um, they started to, you know, try and figure out am I good enough, am I self-righteous, you know, it's just the wrong way to go. The, the whole sermon keeps coming back to are you loving God with everything you got? Jesus is going after the heart as the primary source of where your actions start to play out. Um, so, yeah, I think that's – does that answer any of those questions, Beck? 
Yeah, I think it I think it does. But I think it also raises that question that comes up on the podcast from time to time about the relationship between us striving for righteousness while acknowledging our failure while the Holy Spirit actually helps us. So we've kind of got that tension between what we are achieving, um, we like we are achieving, yes. quote unquote, yes. um, and what the Spirit is achieving in us. Um, and so I think that it's helpful sometimes to think about the different perspectives on that. Like there's the heavenly perspective, which is God is doing all of it. Um, mm. But then there's out from our perspective, we really are striving. Like there's an earthly perspective where we are striving um, to fulfil the law and we can't just let go and let God as we've talked about before. Indeed. Um, we need to keep striving but we can be encouraged that our, our desire to strive comes from the spirit. So to me that's a real assurance that I have the spirit with me. Mm. And like you said, we need that new heart and that comes through the spirit, which the people listening to the Sermon on the Mount didn't really understand the way that we no. do. No, I think that's right. And and I think I just want to affirm all that and say yes. Um, as Christians, we need to strive for righteousness. Where where you know Jesus says hunger and thirst after it. Um, you know, and he puts a high bar and high demands on what our heart longs for, wants, what that looks like in in action. Uh, all the while knowing that we're safe and secure in Christ. Mm. It's his righteousness. Uh, that has made us right before God. Mm. Uh, as humans, we have a tendency to keep going back to ourselves mm. uh, and looking inward and going, I'm actually not good enough. I've done this or I've done that, rather than being safe and secure uh, in what Jesus has already done for us and, and what that sparks in us through mm. the Spirit. Mm. I think that's such an important thing to remember. Like It's that the law and the actions that we do, they don't save us. As we know, that is the core of our faith is that it's from Jesus. And even as we're going along, we must always come back to that. Like as we are doing these things, as we're seeking to have that striving to do what God wants us to do and what pleases him, we have to always go back to it's actually not the actions that I'm doing. That This, this is the outpouring of the faith that I already have. And we all need that constant reminder, like like they said, because we're such tangible people. We see the results that are in us in our lives, and that's what we measure ourselves by. But yeah, keeping that intention. It's it's the progression that Romans goes through mm. uh, as the you know your Romans three, the sort of declaration, no one is righteous. Uh, Romans four, which is about Abraham was saved through faith, not through circumcision, not by what he did, um, and you get this sort of you know. Point in Romans six where he's like, well, it doesn't matter what I do then, mm. um, you know, and describes you know you're you're dead to sin, like it's gone, it's completed, it's amazing. But then the very next verse is like, put to death all the sin in your life. It's like, well, hang on, if I'm already dead to it, how can I put it? Like I think we've gone through this sort of progression before, mm. um, but it's always helpful to go through again because it's their fundamental tenets uh, of what it means to understand the Christian life. That you know, there's this great assurance there but there's still commands in Scripture to live out who we are uh, mm. in Christ. Mm. Okay, cool. All right. Um, I think that's really helpful background as we continue along to look at specific areas that Jesus spoke about. Um, so let's move on to um next question, which is about anger, and the next few questions are as well. So the next question is regarding chapter 5, verses 23 to 24, does this mean if we cannot reconcile with a brother or sister, we should withhold our offertory? Uh, yeah, uh, interesting take um, because it is um, 
verse 23 is about, you know, you're on your way to offer your gift at the altar. Mm. Uh, now, this is again sort of probably trading more on the sacrificial system uh, because going to the altar, they would bring things uh, that were required at certain points uh, so that they could atone for various sins. Uh, and it's almost like you're on your way there and then suddenly remember, oh man, like I've got something against Beck. Um, I, you know, and, and Jesus' point is that point going, well, what's more important at that point? Um, is it the reconciliation piece or is it, you know, um, uh, going through with the offering of your gift? And I think that's the point that Jesus is trying to sort of really wrestle with us here. Um, and he says, no, go and reconcile. Reconciliation is the key, the un, you know, it's at the heartbeat of who I am. Um, you know, 2 Corinthians talks about the ministry of reconciliation mm. um, between us and God and he wants to see that between brothers uh, and sisters uh, who have a disagreement. So I think that's the main point uh, that he's trying to get at is reconciliation is really important. Do it of first importance. Do it even above a gathering together as God's people uh, I think is the point that he's trying to make rather than, uh, you know, I, I won't give my regular, you know, I'll jump into net bank um, and, you know, I'll just stop uh, my, my payments. I don't think that's where he's going uh, and I don't think that's required. I think there is an interesting, um, I guess, even as I'm thinking about this question, like a behind the question kind of thing of where's my heart at when I'm giving myself to God? Like we set, we talk about in, in communion when we do Lord's Supper, um, examine your heart first before we come before God in that in that space. So I, I think um, not to push back, but just also say like when you are giving to God in a deliberate manner or when you are doing Lord's Supper or baptism or anything like that, there is something to be said for as you're going through that, looking at yourself and thinking about where I stand, not only with God, but with his people. And yeah, just examining yourself and not necessarily disengaging from the spaces that you're in as it's happening, but being mindful of where you're at with that. And maybe it does mean it brings up to mind someone you need to reconcile with or someone you need to talk to after. Mm. Um, yeah, I think yeah. that's an important thing to, to mention. Yeah. yeah. I mean, in the good old uh, old school traditions of Anglicanism, uh, you would give prior warning of uh, that Lord's Supper would be coming up with the specific um, intention that if you had something against someone in that congregation or someone in the church, you would sort it out. Because it is a moment of unity at that point. Like you eat and you drink together, uh, you confess your sins together uh, and you show, you know, the witness to the world around us that, you know, we're, we're one together. We're one in Christ. Um, and so there, there are those sort of traditions that sit in the background that, you know, uh, again sort of go to the heart of this to go sort it out um, if, uh, if there's an issue. Mm. Mm. I think it's interesting as well that one commentary pointed out that Jesus' words are, if your brother has something against you, that is that you have wronged someone. Yes. So yeah, the emphasis is on if you have done something to hurt someone, then you need to sort that out before you come to God in worship. So we should not come to worship with the knowledge that we've treated someone badly. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it's a big call because um, – I do, I, I do sin against people all the time and I don't think I necessarily come to church with all of that, all of that sorted. Um, but like we said, like this is, this is righteousness that surpasses that of the Pharisees. Um, thank God for Jesus. Continuing on in the anger discussion, Dave, you shared candidly about some angry outbursts that you had um, from your past. 
and someone has made an observation um, the, from the reaction of the congregation, I assume. Yes. Why do the men laugh at the events of your anger but women are aghast? Yeah, this is a, a fascinating observation um, that, uh, that, that, that came up and I saw it when it came on the, the question time phone. I was like, yeah, don't ask that because I, I don't have an own answer, uh, not, not immediately anyway. Uh, so I have been reflecting just a little bit uh, about it and I do – there's a sense in which um, – uh, and if I can speak just in pure generalisations to start with, mm. um, uh, it, it is interesting uh, that I think uh, I think men do struggle with anger um, more predominantly than women do. Um, not to say women don't get angry um, but, you know, and men express their anger uh, in use of their fists – uh, or, you know, that sort of physical intimidation sort of style. Um, and so I wonder whether the laughter is more a sense of um, I get it mm. um, rather than a sense of just the comedy of it. Um, yeah, and look, I mean, part of it is I didn't share anything recently. Like those are all events from as a teenager. Mm. Um, and so there's a sense I think in which for, for people they go, yeah, like teenagers, you're sorting out your emotions, how to handle them, how to regulate them. Mm. Um, I don't have those outbursts uh, <laughs> anymore. Um, that might just be age or might be the, the spirit's work within me. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the best I can sort of come up with. But it is interesting. I, I, I'm like 1 Timothy 2, when he goes talking to, to men there in verse 8, uh, he says, I want men everywhere to pray, lifting up holy hands without anger or disputing. Mm. Um, so I just felt like it's it's fascinating that he goes there for what he wants men to do with their hands, uh, to not anger, to not dispute, but to pray. Mm. Uh, and so there's some uh, there's something there, but I'm probably not articulating it super well. But yeah, Beck, you got thoughts? Well, I was there and I am a woman and I did laugh. So <laughs> I don't know what that says about me. Um, but I think that I think women do get angry maybe just as much as men. I don't know. You'd have to do studies in it and I haven't done those. Um, but I think that men do express their anger very differently to how women do. And I think um, I have never physically assaulted anyone. Um, it's just not in – it's not the way that I express my anger. Not all women are the same. We have to be careful when we talk about this because making yeah. – Generalisations. Generalisations. There's generalizations. always exceptions. <laughs> and if you are an exception, it doesn't mean that you're not a woman or you're not a man. Um, but, yeah, so, yeah, I, I think there's broad brushstrokes there. Um and, um, yeah, as we wrestle with anger together. Yeah. But, I mean, my, the, the basic answer is I don't know. Yeah. I don't, I, don't, I, don't have a good, I don't have a good answer. Why does my husband like watching Fail Army on YouTube <laughs> and I can't stand it because I watch everyone get hurt and I, it hurts me to watch people get hurt physically. I can't watch it. Yeah. He thinks it's hilarious. I yeah. don't know. Yeah. I, I, I'm with him. <laughs> <laughs> Love Fail Army. <laughs> James, two cents. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, moving on to more anger questions. If God's anger is righteous because it is against sin, but our anger is often selfish, are there circumstances when our anger is justified if it is against sin? Or should we try and let it go in all circumstances since our anger is flawed? And then there's a follow-up question that's similar. Is there no such thing as righteous anger? Is there, ang is there anger that is not sinful? 
just got the point from Dave. It's my turn. Go, Dan. <laughs> um, I think there's like an important distinction here in um, like God's anger versus our anger. And I guess it came to mind when I was thinking about this question of the perspective that that brings. I guess like when we were talking about the discipline thing, there's a certain perspective that God has that we don't have. And I think resting in that um, in that difference is also possibly the start of an answer here. Like um, because of who we are naturally wired as sinful in our deepest nature, that means even the most innocent form of anger or righteous anger is also tainted by sin. And God doesn't have that. God's anger is always righteous and is always done with the right motives. So I think there's a tension wrestling there in um, it's hard to to grasp because we don't have that same perspective as God. Um, beginnings of an answer there. Anything to add? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, Jesus feels like he's specifically here talking about relational stuff uh, as opposed to uh, the state of the world. So, you know, he's sort of very much if you, um, you're angry with your brother or sister are the, are the words that he uses. Um, and so I think, yeah, he's going to that general relational sort of aspect going, hey, when you guys aren't getting on or, uh, you know, there's, there's an offence and there's anger there, that's, that's what I think he's going at. Um, and, I, and I think that there, there, is, um, there, there is righteous anger. Uh, Ephesians talks about in your anger do not sin. Um, and so it's not don't be angry, therefore you'll never sin. It's, so he's like there's rightful things to be angry about in our world. Um, uh, and I think what Jesus is picking up is going there's also a bunch that aren't um, worthy of it. Uh, and there are some times where, uh, you have to leave things to God and go, yeah, look, that's, doesn't feel fair. Like I genuinely feel violated by it, but I'll leave it to God and his justice. Uh, and I think we looked at a passage, maybe it was on the podcast at some point, like Romans was in Romans 12. We talked about heaping burning coals on the head or is that one Corinthians? I remember talking about Yeah, it. I remember talking about too, like, you know, th- there's a sense in which um, how much do you want to take justice into your own hands and how much do you want to uh, trust that God will bring and put all things right in his time? And there's there's a wisdom call. Mm, mm. I think as well, like, particularly when we're doing that relational thing, particularly as we're being with one another in whatever form that is, there are some things that, is right to be righteously angry, angry, angry for that you're never going to get justice for either. And particularly in that space, you really do need to bring that before God and settle that with in yourself before him. And yeah, yeah, that's, I think that, that's an important thing to consider too. Yeah, it's trusting God that justice will be done. And I think we see that in the Psalms. Some of the, Psalm, some of the Psalms are very angry and say quite outrageous things about their enemies in their in their anger, but um, yeah, but there's this then undercurrent in those in those they call imprecatory psalms, um, where there's entrusting judgment to the Lord, um, and there is rest in that, um, but it's hard. Um, mm. Which brings us to the next question: um, What are some healthy ways to deal with anger and frustration? Yeah, look, I think um, uh, it's. Uh, it, I shared on when I shared on Sunday those particular things. Um, you know, like teenage years for me, 
uh, and my own anger, I often really struggled with it um, because I, I wasn't quite sure what to do with it, you know. And there's uh, like I've actually no, I've never been in a fist fight, like just to put it out there. Like I had someone swing a punch at me once, but that was year five. Um, and I ran away as fast as I could and hid in the library. Um, that's, <laughs> well played. That's about as close as I got. But that's not to say I wasn't angry. Like there's mm. plenty of times where like like I you just fly off the handle. Um, and so uh, – and especially when my kids were little, like nothing like testing your own patience as a human being and your own character to have small children uh, mm. who have no filters yeah. and, you know, they don't have know how to regulate their own emotions. Uh, and so, I, like, during that particular phase of life for me, like, uh, anger flared up again. Mm. And so I knew it was something I actually needed to deal with um, and think about who I am as a person, who do I want to be and what sort of house do we want to have growing up and, you know, does dad want to be always the angry guy? Um and so, like, I've had to work on it is all I'm saying just personally. Um, and I think in terms of dealing with anger, um, you know, and part of it is knowing yourself are you a, uh, and how do you deal with that. Are you a bottle up, you know, volcano explosion sort of person or are you just you sharp, you know, someone says something, bang, you're, you're back at them and off you go. Like, you want to get my face? I'll get in your – like, it's helpful to know yourself mm. and to what regulation looks like. Um, and so for me, who's more bottle up and then bang, it all comes out, um, you know, uh, journaling, expressing my emotions, not necessarily to that person, but, you know, writing things down uh, was, was helpful for me because it, it got it out in a healthy way um, because the only me and the pen and the paper, uh, not a lot can go wrong. Um, uh, and also I found praying through those particular circumstances uh, and asking God to show me where I'm at fault. Because often you get a narrative in your own head and you start thinking, oh, they've done this, 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 and you start connecting dots that should never be joined. Like, you know, you've gone from one to 100 as a, instead of one to two. Mm. Uh, and, uh, you know, just having that sober point of reflection to go, what have I done in this that they've reacted that way that has escalated the argument? Uh, and I found, you know, praying for the person who you're having the disagreement with is actually – uh, super helpful mm. um, and pausing and, and waiting. So, uh, and those times where you feel like, oh man, like I'm I'm ready, walk away, you know, count to ten, take a time out, do what you need to do. Um, you can't take words back. Mm. It's very hard to take words and actions back in the moment. So, um, you know, you don't want to live with that regret. Uh, I think relationally. So anyway, there's a few points there. Yeah. Um, I think, yeah, I'm um, knowing myself, like particularly this year, I found I'm a very verbal processor, um, talking these things through with people that I trust and just, yeah, I want to affirm not only like the prayer thing and bring it before God, but with people that you really do trust when you have removed yourself from, the, from situations like this, talking it through with them and they, if you trust them and they know you well, will know how you operate and know how, know the questions to ask to kind of get you to help process these things. And um, then when you're ready, yeah, maybe pursue further action, whether it be talking or, or with, with the person or anything like that. But yeah, verbal processing and actually bringing it out. Um, not only, I think the journaling is a really good thing too, but also with other people that you trust. I, I found that helpful myself. Yeah. Yeah. Redheads are known to be fiery. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
And that's not to say that I'm not, um, but I think one of the big lessons that I learned very early on was um, slow to speak. Um, so um, I usually sit on things for a while. So my wife and I, we don't fight or let things get too big or anything like that when we get angry. Um, I just refuse to to speak to someone in that manner because nothing good comes from it. Uh, you speak out of anger and you end up doing more damage. And so normally I'll, I'll walk away for 10, 15 minutes and cool down and then come back and then speak in a manner in which we can speak as two adults and talk through whatever it is that we're disagreeing with or arguing over. Um, but I know for me, yeah, slow to speak is the big one because I've seen damage be done when people respond quick. So, mm. yeah. Mm. Yeah, there is um, – I mean – Without sort of heading down this whole you know, marriage, you know, but obviously, you know, for, for many people, that's where you, yeah, you, you have your most significant yeah. um, backwards and forwards, shall mm. we say? Um, it, setting aside actually quality time to talk through disagreements is actually really helpful. You know, the the start up as you walk, both walking out the door to say, you know, you never did that, and then you leave, mm. it ruins my day because mm. uh, I can't think. Um, you know, I'm like thinking, well, I am thinking, I'm thinking about what's happened, but actually setting aside time, asking yourselves, you know, how are we actually going? What are the recent disagreements? What do we need to solve together? And in the sober mindedness of it, as opposed to the heat of the moment, you actually make progress mm. um, relationally. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I always try and think through um, when there's moments of anger, not necessarily in the context of marriage, but in any context where someone's angry with you or you're angry with them, is always. Always trying to see it from another perspective um, and that's why I'm slow to respond in those moments because by the time I can get my head around, okay, so why would they do that or what, what are they hearing or thinking uh, that would cause them to respond that way and cause whatever that conflict might be where that anger is flared up, um, I think it just really helps you respond well to the situation. Um, and so, yeah, and the other thing more practically, um, I don't do it very much which is obvious, um, but uh, I used to run. Um, and so that used to help me clear my head. So endorphins uh, make a world of difference when you're trying to deal with anger. Um, and so I'd encourage people to, you know, they say, go for a walk, go for a walk. And, yeah, it's um, a physical It actually outlet. really helps and being able to calm down and, and let you think through. Mm. And this is my mic stuffing up. People wondering why I've been quiet. I had to swap mics with Beck halfway through the <laughs> podcast and it's cutting in and out. Very subtle, well. James. <laughs> yeah, you want to examine why you're angry because if you're angry, it's it's your emotions telling you something. So and you can't examine why you're angry unless your body is calm. Yeah, so I think that's all really helpful. Moving on to another difficult topic, the topic of lust. Um, so... How can a person who is single navigate the space between attraction and lust as they are looking for a partner? Go for it, Beck. Okay. So um, the first thing I think we need to do is to define what is attraction and what is lust. And I've got some ideas but I haven't written a dictionary so they might not be right. Um, I would say attraction is noticing that the other person is attractive Lust is then using the other person in thoughts or deed as an instrument of personal gratification. Um, so that is you're selfishly using um, a concept of that person in order to make yourself feel good. So it's not about them anymore. It's all about you and what you can get out of that person. Um, so I would say being attracted to someone is not is not wrong. Like you can't actually really help that. It's just a it's just a fact. It's just something that is inbuilt in us. Whereas lust is when you take that attraction and 
trot down the road with it a little bit into unhelpful places. What do you guys think? Ah, um, <laughs> excuse me. Um, yes, I, I think uh, the, the idea of navigating space between attraction and lust, I think, you know, I think there's really helpful definitions. Um, and, and when you're looking for a partner, there be, you know, people who you are attracted to. Uh, and um, you just want to be careful uh, in terms of how you conduct yourself uh, as a boyfriend, as a girlfriend, uh, in what that looks like, um, you know, especially if you're both attracted to one another but you're not yet married. Uh, there's good healthy boundaries that God sets up as to sort of what that needs to look like. Um, and so um, make yourself accountable if you're in that situation uh, to other people so that they can uh, help you navigate those sort of um, – uh, those paths are with you and alongside you. So, mm. um, yeah, that's that's. I think that's my sort of tips in that space. I think particularly in that latter one of um, accountability and, yeah, being with other people and as you're navigating that space, it can be hard and bringing it out and if you are struggling, bringing it out in light and talking about it with other people that you, again, that you trust, like I was saying before, is a really helpful first step in just tackling and really talking through this, this space, I think. And yeah, it's definitely helped me in the past. Yeah. And continues to this day. Mm. Mm. Yeah. That's helpful. All right. So moving out of the single space into the married space, is it possible to lust after your wife or husband in a sinful way? I think the answer, as I've been reflecting on this one, is another question I thought, mm, um, or say, and I think the answer is yes. Um, uh, there are particular ways I think you can last after your particular partner in, in a way that's really unhelpful. Mm. Um, uh, I think there's ways I don't particularly want to put in front of people because I don't want them to sort of you know um, to fuel anyone's uh, thought life. Um, and uh, but yeah, I think you want to you want to uphold and honour your partner. Um, and you want to have that aspect where there's there's that attraction uh, that goes uh, between you and and each of you, um, and you want to have that faithfulness um, with one another uh, in terms of what those thoughts and actions you know look like. Um, and I think there's particular there's, there may be lots of different ways that you know that can stray and be really unhelpful mm. uh, and you know breaking God's boundaries and and other bits and pieces. So. Yeah. Your thoughts? I agree because I think if you use my definition of lust before where you're using someone for your own personal gratification rather than being focused on serving them, yeah. I think it's it's very possible yeah. to have lust within marriage um, in, in a way that's unhelpful and doesn't uphold the dignity and autonomy of your partner. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I think like just go back to um, when we went out, worked our way through 1 Corinthians 7 and we were talking about, you know, what, what marriage needs to look like. Uh, I do want to go back and talk about and just mention that consent within marriage is a real thing. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, it's it's about husband and wife consenting with what that looks like and I don't think you want to stray too far from those sorts of conversations together. Definitely not. Yeah, I think that's important to say, particularly in the church where there has been abuse of that. Yeah. Um, all right, so next question Um how do we balance adultery and purity? 
On one side we have Abraham's descendants, as many as the stars on the sky, and every human born from sex. On the other side, there's no desire of the flesh. This leads to no next generation, and the retired age becomes longer and longer. I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Do you want me to no, say you, what I you, think it means? Can you read? Is it off the back of Paul uh, when we were in 1 Corinthians saying it's better to remain single because you can work better for the gospel and you're not distracted? Sounds feel similar to that. Is that that, that sort okay. of notion? Yeah, keep, keep, keep going because I'm still not sure what my answer is. I think I know what it's saying, but I don't want to... I don't want to jump. I feel like there's a built-in assumption to this question that I don't think I agree with, um, which I think is why it's confusing as a question. Um, purity is not the absence of sex um, or even attraction. It's what we do with sex and attraction. We can we can do deal with these things in a godly way or in an ungodly way. So when we deal with sex and attraction in an ungodly way, that is impure. Um, so I think I feel like this person's saying if everyone abstained from sex, which is the pure thing to do, there'd be no next generation. And I don't think that's what God is asking of us is to completely abstain from sex. Yeah. yeah okay. Um, yeah. We, we we need to keep uh, we need to keep saying as Christians uh, that sex is a good thing. Uh, it's not dirty. It's not filthy. It's not wrong. Uh, it's not like um, God looked at Adam and Eve at Genesis two and went, oh, hang on. That's not good. Like he's known it's a good thing that, you know, they became one flesh. Um, and so I, I think we're going to need to keep upholding that and say it's a really good thing. It just has some confines around it, some healthy sort of paddocks for it to play in. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, it's just the, the, the example I use is uh, it, it's like a knife. Like a knife uh, is a good utensil for cutting meat. It's a terrible thing if you use it for murder. Mm. Um, like it... It has a purpose built into it, and the sex is the same. Mm. Um, it's it's good and great, and how we use it. But unfortunately, many people use it wrongly, um, and I, I think we want to say, as to marry people, sex is a good thing. Having children that results out of that is a good thing too. That's God given. Uh, it's all it's all a wonderful thing. Um, but if you're not in that context, then yes, uh, it it shouldn't be used um, mm. outside of the context. Yeah. Yep, I think that's good. Um, all right, next question. Does God take lustful thoughts as seriously as lustful actions then? Yes. I agree. Let's move on. <laughs> <laughs> um, basically, it's out of the heart. Like, so your thought life is really important. And I think this is important when it comes to conversations around, um, uh, you know, does it really matter to God if I've had these thoughts and attractions, you know, in my head or in my thoughts, but I've never acted upon them, because uh, that's often quite a you know you know a, a conversation that happens around to sort of go look you know uh, it's it's all up here like I'm not doing anything with it, but what's happened? Oh, I must up here. I'm pointing to my head. Yes, your brain. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, and I I think I've always struggled with. That sort of logic to go, it doesn't really matter or God doesn't care for it, uh, especially when you look at a passage like we looked at on Sunday. I find it very hard to sort of go, yeah, I'm with you. Um, you haven't acted upon it, therefore it's all, all okay. I think God does go for our hearts and our thoughts and what's going on within us um, as a measure of, um, you know, uh, what's what's good and what's not. And I, I think I can't remember the reference. You might be able to say it, but like what – starts in the heart and the feelings comes eventually out in action. And if you're, yeah, you're doing all the right things, but it 
starts and disconnects from your thoughts, there's a danger there, I think. You, you're, there's no, I guess in a way, there's no integrity there. Like your, your thoughts and your beliefs that you're feeling don't match what you're doing on the outside. And there's a, yeah, a big danger there, I think. Yeah, it's Mark, Mark 7, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, envy slander, arrogance and folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. Yeah. yeah, and it gets a bit tricky when you start talking about attraction versus lust yes. and all of those things yes. because those things do happen in your thoughts. It's whether or not you are entertaining certain thoughts and um, reveling in certain thoughts, I guess, um, cultivating a certain um, unhelpful thought life. Um, yeah, it's 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 tricky, but yeah, God God cares about what you're thinking about. Yeah, and and um, just before we move to the next question, that. Uh, our thought lives are very private. Yeah. Um, you're not necessarily sharing them with, with other people. And so there is a sense in which this is really you and God, mm. you know, raw and real, right? Um, and, and how honest do you want to be with God, uh, with your thoughts? Uh, and if you think he cares about them, then it's probably good to have a real hard think about what's going on in your head. Because um, all sorts of ugly things go on in my head. Mm. Um uh, and I think you want to come before God and go, mate, not mate, he's not your mate. He's your heavenly father. Um, and confess those things. Uh, he sees the rawness and ugliness of your heart, but yet he's also still forgiven you. Mm. And he says he loves you. And, you know, like that for me, I think that vulnerability piece that you can have with God, that he's still your heavenly father, I think is quite extraordinary. Mm. Yeah. All right, next question. You mentioned five A's in your sermon. We might need to go over what they are. Yep, um, got them here. Um, how can we make it easier for ourselves to apply this in our lives? For someone who has spent a lifetime liking a sin, they might find it hard to know where to begin. Yeah. Is there a particular order we should apply these five A's? Yeah, so um, so if you haven't listened to the, the talk on Sunday yet, um, this is specifically talking uh, about the lusts in the heart that express themselves through use of pornography. Um, and so we, we did spend a fair bit of time talking through that. Uh, and I recommended Tim Chester's book, uh, Captured by a Better Vision, uh, Living Porn Free. Uh, and he has these five A's in there. Um, and so let me just quickly go through the five. So it was an abhorrence, a hatred of porn itself and a longing for change, adoration, a desire for God arising from a confidence that he offers more than porn, three, assurance that you are loved by God and right with God through faith in the work of Jesus, avoidance, a commitment to do all in your power to avoid temptation, starting the controls on your computer, and five, accountability, a community of Christians. Um, it, and, and I said I read Tim's book from start to finish uh, last week. Uh, it was just brilliant, super, super helpful. Uh, and uh, I think it's the second time I've read it. Um, and what Tim does also along these five A's that was sort of hard to capture also in a talk with time constraints on it is he actually dives um, behind these five A's to the reasons why you look. And he says, if you never wrestle with the reasons why you look, like is it boredom? Is it just pure boredom? Um, or is it there's something within yourself um, and who you are and the, the release that comes uh, from looking at pornography 
And he goes through a whole bunch and he does give a, there's a, there's a really helpful little table. I think it's right at the back of his book if you want to cheat, <laughs> um, which I encourage you to cheat on this one. Um, and he goes through the, the, here's the reasons, here's what God says about it, and here's some things to do. I don't have the book right in front of me uh, right now, but um, it's complex. Um, and if you have an addiction, like it's something that you do on a regular basis with pornography, um, you'll need to do all these five at some point. Um, he, he says most people jump to the avoidance and accountability first without really wrestling hard with one to three and building in that hatred of porn because it is. Um, like we've talked about sin in the past. The hardest ones to deal with are the sins you love and the sins you like. And for many people, this is pornography. Um, they love it. Um, the sins you abhor like you abhor Brussels sprouts is my illustration, my go-to one. You don't do, but the sins you love, the hardest ones to deal with and wrestling hard with what that looks like, um, I think is, um, uh, is what it actually means. And he has it, he has it next to the table at the end, he has a last chapter is all about what is your vision for who God is. And uh, that's why it's called Captured by a Better Vision. Uh, the vision of who God is, which is the adoration and assurance aspect in two and three. Um, understanding who God is and how he genuinely satisfies uh, is some of the key work you need to do. But it's, it's not a quick fix. This isn't a switch the lights on and off sort of thing. If, if this is an ongoing problem, it needs an ongoing solution. So it's not necessarily applying each A through a procedure. It's like tick-tacking through them all and working through the yeah, issues. Yeah. And and it, it will feel like at times, um, having walked alongside uh, many uh, guys predominantly um, with pornography addiction, uh, it's can sometimes feels like two steps forward, one step back. Uh, and when they're working really hard to... Um, work against it and they fall in it again it can the shame and guilt that they feel feel it can sometimes feel like they're falling in a deeper hole mm. uh, than they initially had when they first started going actually I really want to deal with this you know um, and so it's it's a real thing so it's it's yeah there's work mm. for us to do yeah definitely well that wraps up the questions from our sermon but we're going to go into overtime because we did have a couple of bonus questions that came in. Overtime's always <laughs> exciting. It means there's been a draw. It's, it's, <laughs> let's right. go. <laughs> let's see who wins. Um, so we've got a quick one and a more complex question. So let's start with um, the less complex question first. In the Apostles' Creed, why do we say the universal church rather than Catholic church? I thought Catholic church was the tradition. Yeah, so um, uh, Catholic means all sorts of different things to different people. Mm. Um, and so uh, Catholic, uh, its an original meaning was that whole idea of universal, like it's talking about the whole church. But for the day and age we live in now, when people hear Catholic, they think Roman Catholic church. Mm. And so to avoid a mistake and people going, yeah, I believe in the, the holy Catholic church, uh, people have often, when you left Catholic in, they're gone, I thought this was an Anglican church. Mm. And I, so what we've done and what people who have been working on the prayer book and some of these things have pretty much predominantly changed it to universal because that's a better understanding of the language we use today than Catholic, which in some ways is, 
you know, is what it is, but it's also a little disappointing. The Catholic word is a good one. It was there for a reason, but language has changed over time uh, and we have moved with it. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. All right. The next question is our more complex question. What should I do when someone asks me to use different pronouns for them? I recently had an experience with this and didn't know what to do or what God would want me to do. Um, all right, let, let me share some thoughts um, that I have and based on some reading that I've done. I have teenagers, so I've been grappling with this for a long time because the trans conversation has been in their space basically since they started high school. Um, so let me first say that um, there are good, respectable, respectable biblical thinkers um, who disagree on this conversation. So this is not an easy, an easy answer. Um, so let me start with the case against using someone's preferred pronouns. Um, the case against centres around this idea of honesty. So we want to speak the truth when we speak to somebody. So if if someone is a woman and they want to be referred to as he, him, to use their preferred pronouns is to be lying to them. It's buying into the trans ideology and it's encouraging them to lie to themselves and, and that's the, the guts, I think, of why some biblical thinkers um, are opposed to using someone's preferred pronouns. Um, the case four um, looks at language in a different way. We were just talking about what Catholic means to many people today. What pronouns pronoun, – oh, I need to learn to talk <laughs> before I start to talk about complex concepts – the pronouns that people use today mean different things in different circles as well. So in a conservative um, church where we we would talk about biological sex and gender as being interchangeable, the same thing. When we go into the trans world and the LGBT world and even into just younger spaces, that's not what gender means. Gender is an expression um, of someone's personal identity that they more strongly identify with and that can align with their biological sex or it may not. That's what pronouns mean to that group. So some biblical thinkers say it is not actually lying when we use someone's preferred pronouns because we are entering their space and using language in a way that they understand it. It's like a cross-cultural mission kind of idea. Now, this has the benefit then of um, encouraging relationship and trust and closeness with a person who is trans. If you refuse to use someone's preferred pronouns, that will typically end the conversation and maybe even the relationship. Um, so the term used by people, thinkers such as Preston Sprinkle and Greg Cole are pronoun hospitality. So we enter into their space and we use pronouns that make them feel comfortable in our conversations, even if we disagree with their ideology. And what's interesting is, is um, Greg Cole has written a paper on this and perhaps we'll link it to the show notes because he explains it much better than I can, um, is that people who are transgender or identify differently to their biological sex, as, as we would term it, they would term it a different way. Um, if we uh, use pronoun hospitality, they don't necessarily think that we agree with their ideology, but what they do is they accept it as an act of kindness. So we might think we're communicating all of this stuff about what we believe the Bible says about sex and gender, but to the transgender person or the non-binary person, 
that then may not be receiving it like that at all. Um, and that's certainly what he has found in his conversations with people who actually have this lived experience. Um, so it's a complex issue. I'll tell you where I land. I do use people's preferred pronouns based on those things. I don't see it as lying because I'm using the terms in the way that they understand them, not in necessarily in the way that I understand them. Um, and I also want to embrace people and I don't, and especially as a Christian and wanting to see people come to Jesus, I think if we if we don't use people's preferred pronouns, then that could be a barrier that means they will never step into a church or listen to what anyone has to say about Jesus again. And I do I will also say that people I know who are um, questioning their gender, um, like teenagers, my my kids' friends or others, they're actually quite interested in Jesus. Um, so I don't want to, I don't want to get in the way of that. That so that's where I stand. But I, I do acknowledge that there are different views for good reasons. Yeah. Well, w- when we were chatting earlier uh, about this question, uh, the the place we sort of landed in terms of the relationship with this person, like you know whoever asked this question and, and their relationship with this person, is also pretty key. Uh, yep. And there there may come a time in the relationship where you feel like you've given, 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 but, you know, uh, you can't continue to do it for whatever reason um, and fully well knowing to sort of start going, actually, I'm, not, I, I'm no longer comfortable in that situation to use those, those pronouns, um, knowing full well that might relationally uh, terminate it uh, or it might make things a little awkward for a little bit depending on the nature of the relationship, um, you know. Uh, and and that's also a significant part in there as opposed to just a random person uh, on the street. But that doesn't normally technically happen. Normally, it, normally it's in the context of relationships mm. uh, that these things um, start to sort of come up. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, I'm going to give James some links, um, the case for and the case against, so that people can use those as a springboard um, into their own thinking, particularly if this is your question. Um, don't just take our word for it. Um, dig into it yourself and um, continue the conversation. So that wraps up all of our questions, including our bonus questions. Um, what are we talking about this Sunday? Yeah, so uh, we're kicking on um, with where we left off. Uh, so we left off talking uh, about adultery. We pick up talking about divorce. Mm-hmm. Um, but really what we're talking about uh, there is is faithfulness. Um, and uh, it's important really to understand what Jesus uh, is interacting with when he makes his comments here on divorce. Uh, and again, the whole way through about truthfulness, vengefulness uh, and graciousness with one another. Uh, and so uh, it's tough. Like, you know, I've been prepping already and, um, yeah, I think if our hearts were feeling a little tender uh, off the back of last week, um, yeah, bring your tender heart to Jesus this week mm-hmm. uh, and um, ask for him to mend it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> because uh, he, he continues to expose. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, but it's good for us. It is good for us. Really good for us. It's yeah. like surgery. It is. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, um, be brave and come and... Uh, hang out with us on Sunday and um, we look forward to seeing you then. Thanks for listening to this episode. We'd love you to join us at Kellyville Anglican any Sunday at 8.30, 10.30 or 6.15pm. 
If you can't visit us in person, you can also join us on You can find out more information at www.ka.church. So come join us and see for yourself what is said on Sunday.